Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for uh, the chapter 8 of the book of Romans. We thank you, God, that life in the Spirit is real, that your love is real, and that you live today and lives are changed. We thank you, God, for this time that we could gather around and to look at this most amazing chapter in the Bible, I think, Romans chapter 8. Thank you for our guests here. And we just pray, Lord, for this message that we would just hear from you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Last week, we just said that there were three things that were really important for us to understand before we look at this chapter. And that was number one. We talked about what is the human spirit? What is the human spirit? Uh, What is it? And we said that that is that part of us that's like a window to God. It's that part of us that's conscious of God. It's something that an animal doesn't have. It's something that that uh, any other creature does not have except for a human being. You and I have a spirit. This spirit is tuned to the frequency of God, and it can hear God's voice. And when we are quickened in the Holy Spirit, we can hear from the voice of God. We can hear the voice of God through the spirit. We talked about that last week. We talked about the difference between soulishness and spirituality. Soulishness was a lot of times Christi- people's Christianity takes place in their soul and what that means is is that their emotions their willpower their their norms and standards their conscience uh the the um their self-awareness all of these things make up the soul and this is where a lot of times christians live and that and yes our christianity does impact our soul but our soul is to be governed by the spirit and the spirit is that part of us that is aware of God. For example, do you remember when David said in the book of Psalms, uh, why art thou downcast, O my soul? Why are you downcast? David, from the perspective of his spirit, is speaking to his soul. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, why are you downcast? He was talking to himself from a spiritual point of view. He was counseling himself. He was speaking to himself God's mind from the word of God. And this is something that only a Christian can do. Someone that is not born again, that's not saved, does not have any spiritual life. It, it's, it's, if he does, it's, it's debilitated, it is paralyzed, it is handicapped. It is very, very limited to what he can do. So he does have a higher, maybe an unsaved person has a higher consciousness, but it's very cloudy and it's unregenerated and it has no understanding of what that is. And so when a person gets saved, our spirit, our human spirit is quickened. It's a lot, it's revived. It's like a candle. It's like a flame that's put on a candlestick. Actually, the Bible says that the spirit of a man is the candle of the Lord. If you look at our soul without the spirit, it is just a candle that has a wick, but no flame. But with the spirit, with the human spirit, with the Holy Spirit, quickening us at the point of salvation that that flame is lit in our soul in our soul in our in our spirit comes alive and you may not know immediately you may not experience anything sometimes people have a spiritual experience when they get saved sometimes they don't it's not required but it can happen very often what will happen is a person will get saved they'll make the decision for christ and then later on down the road they'll they'll have some kind of a 
quickening in their spirit and they'll understand something. They'll have a spiritual eye-opening understanding. And so we talked about the human spirit, that, that for us to live as spiritual people, our need is to continually be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Ephesians 4, verse 23. Every day, that is our, that is our, our number one prayer. God, quicken me in my spirit according to, and David said this, according to thy word. David said this, he said, quicken thou me according to thy, quicken my soul according to thy word. What he was saying was that my soul cleaves to the dust. There's a part of us that really cleaves to the dust, doesn't it? There's a part of us that really cleaves to the dust. There's dusty things that, that we are attracted to. Like, I don't know why, but we, you know, we turn on the news and there's this garbage, there's like negativity. And there's something about us that cleaves to that. And that is a, our soulishness. There's a part of us also that cleaves to the beautiful, wonderful, high-cultured uh, high, high um, experience like at a symphony orchestra or some very high type of entertainment that is very classical. Our soul cleaves to that as well. But all of that, though it may be good or maybe it could be bad, uh, that is all, those are things that um, our soul cleaves to. Our soul is that part of us that lives in what it desires and what it is preferring. For example, um, I could live in preferences in my soul and that could, be, that could be so much less than what God has for us. And so that's why we always have to um, hit the pause button and ask God, is this you? Is this not you? You know, with this, with this journey, with this adoption, with this fostering, and we don't know like what's going to happen. The, 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 the parents are in a situation where it's a, just a desperate situation. Uh, if their life can get, if their life can get pulled together, then then uh, then the baby can go back to them. But um, you know that is quite an interesting situation. You look at that and you think, um, you know, like when we are looking to adopt, we found ourselves at times kind of thinking in a shopping mode. You know, like going on Amazon.com and saying, well, we got this kind of kid, we want this and this. And it just got to the point where we just say, God, you have to choose for us because you can choose so much better than us. And when we do that, and I think that whenever we've lived that way in our life, when we say, God, you've got to choose for me because I'm going to choose so much less than what you have for me. Because yeah. your grace is so much greater than anything I could imagine that I would want. And when we allow God to choose for you, if I could say this to young people today, let God choose for you. Yes. Let God choose for you. Just say, God, I don't know what the best you know, before I married my wife, I said, God, I don't know who the, the best person to marry. You got you to gotta really make that so clear to me. You got to knock me up the side of the head with the woman that you have for me. And that's what he literally did. That's how it worked. And when we pray this way, we can trust in the sovereignty of God. You know, sovereignty, you know, that's a big word. And I think in some grace circles, grace teaching circles, the word sovereignty is a little, we push back a little bit on that because we have a fatalistic idea of that. You know what that means, fatalism? It just means que uh, sera, sera, right? Or, or what will be, will be. And it's, that's what in Islam they teach. They say, whatever Allah wills. And it's a very fatalistic look at God or at, at the Godhead or at divinity, saying that, um, hey, what does my free will have to say in the matter 
God's going to override it anyway, and it's probably going to be not something that, that I like. Sometimes people can look at the passages where, where Jesus said to Peter, uh, now you gird yourself up and you go the way you want, but there will be a day that comes when you will stretch out your hand and another will take you where you would not. And I think a lot of times we, we interpret that verse to say this, God's going to only take me to those places that I don't want to go to. God's going to only take me to those places I don't want to go to. And can I tell you that that is wrong? That's wrong. It's a wrong interpretation of that verse. And I'll tell you, I'll prove it to you because I'm so smart. (laughs) No, I'll prove it to you because in the Greek it says this, that Peter, I'm going to take you to places that you would have never even imagined you would have even desired or even wanted to go. And it's going to be so amazing that you would have never even known how to even want this. Does that make sense? And so when we look at our life today, we can say that in so many ways that I'm in a place where I never would have ever imagined that I'm here in this place experiencing something that I never could have thought I could have ever qualified for. And, you know, when people look at the sovereignty of God and they say, well, God is, you know, they look at it in a fatalistic way that God's going to do what he's going to do. And that's the way it is. And that's and there's nothing I can do about that. I can I can do all my decision making and I can work so hard on my decisions. But God's going to do what he wants to do. And in the end, it may be good, it may be bad, but it's probably going to be bad because, because that's, what I, that's my concept of God. And that's the wrong concept of God. The beauty of the sovereignty of God, and the only way that we can understand the sovereignty of God, and what we'll look at in Romans chapter 8 later, is in predestination and election, and all of these words that just mean that God foreknows, God knows ahead of time who's, making to, who's going to make a decision for him and who will not. And he looks down through the ages and he sees in his incredible way of seeing things, a way that we could not see. God sees the end from the beginning and he sees that. And in his sovereignty, he, he in Romans chapter 8, later on we'll see this, says that he justifies us, he calls us, he perfects us. And this is so amazing. And for me, it was such a revelation to me this year that the sovereignty of God is the base foundation of the sovereignty of God, the sovereign decisions of God, all the whole aspect of the sovereignty of God is guided by, by his grace. By his grace. Which means this, that yes, God's going to do what he's going to do. And God has a sovereign plan. And how human will and God's will fit into that picture is really not understood because we're finite and God's infinite. But we can know this. <clears throat> We don't maybe know how it's going to turn out, but we do know who is in control. I don't know what's going to happen this summer with my business or with my family or with this situation or that situation, with my health. But one thing I do know is I know who God is, and he is good, he is gracious, and he's kind. And that's what I'm going to believe. And so when we look at the sovereignty of God, we have to understand that what God has planned and what God has willed for you and I in our lives is the best and the most awesome thing that we could ever experience as creatures. Here's the second doubt that people have. Well, if God is good and he's going to plan all of these great things for me, then it's probably going to be something that I don't like because I don't think that God knows what I like or my preferences are not in line with God's preferences. I want something different. 
That's a wrong concept too, because God has created us. We are a personal creation. In our personal creation, and we are today what we are by the grace of God, this journey that we've taken, the bumpy road, the, the, uh, the, the, the very difficult road or the most amazing road, brings us to where we are today. And we are created personally by God. And that personal creation, only, only one person can understand not my spouse, not my family, not my employer, not my church. Only one person can know your soul, and that's God. And we talked about that last week. There is a measure of solitude in our soul because we are so deep as creatures. We are so deep as people. We are so complex that it's just laughable when a psychologist sits down and tries to take apart a person and figure them out. It's just laughable. I think the best thing that a psychologist can do and sometimes people need to see them, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not downing that. People do need counseling. But I'm saying this, is that, is that the best thing that um, secular psychology that doesn't have God's viewpoint can do is analyze a problem, and that's it. And say, this, is, this looks like this is the problem. But you know something? You and I, we are spiritual creatures. We are deep people. There's a depth to us that longs for understanding, Right? There's a part of us that really longs for understanding. We really desire to be understood. And that's what social media is all about. That's what, that's what relationships are all about. That's what marriage is about. That's what friendships that's about. You know, people, if we're not married, then we desire that, that companionship, that, that understanding where someone can mirror back to me, um, understanding of who I am. But you know something? There's a, there is always going to be an aspect of us and I don't want to sound I don't want this to make I don't want to make this sound sad or melancholic but there's a part of us that no one's going to understand Amen. no one and that's good that's okay only God's going to understand that part and why is that important because when we look at the sovereignty of God when we look at the will of God we need to understand that not only God is God's sovereignty based on his goodness but it's also based on his understanding of us. Okay, his understanding of us. I think there's many times when we feel I'm not being understood. I'm not being understood here. You know, I'm not being understood by, by, uh, by my employer. I'm not being understood by this situation. And I think that we all face that every week, right? Does anybody not face that this week? Where you're thinking, I'm not being understood, <laughs> right? Or like... You ever have this conversation with somebody and you explain the whole thing to them and then they say something back to you and you say to them, you're not hearing me. (laughs) What we're really saying is that there's a cry of my heart that is screaming bigger than my words and you're not hearing what I'm saying. You know, there's only one person on this planet, in this universe that can hear us and that is Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit that comforts us, the Spirit of God that knows the depths of our spirit. Because there's a part of us, and we said this last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that searches every nook and cranny of our soul. Every part of us is sought out and it's known and it's indexed and it's calculated and it's documented and it's understood and it's, and it's, and it's discerned. And that happens by the Spirit. The Spirit of God, whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not, searches you out, searches me out. And this is what David said in Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Search me, O God. 
Psalm 139 is one. If you can read that chap, if you can read that chapter tonight or today, it'll it'll comfort you. It'll really encourage you. Psalm 139. It's David is in a place, and David was a man that very few people understood. David, what was going on in David's life? That's why he wrote so many psalms. David had an understanding that he's living in a measure of solitude, yet he didn't become a prisoner of that solitude. Okay, he didn't become a prisoner of that solitude. Does that make sense? We can be in solitude. I don't know. Sometimes I think, wouldn't life be great if I lived in Montana and nobody lived around me for like 20, 20 30 miles? I, sometimes thoughts like that come to my mind. But it would not. I'd probably drive myself crazy. You know? I'd probably drive the animals crazy. You know, I'd probably drive, you know, because there's, an, uh, there's a part of us that must, that, that is it's a drive in us, and that dri- drive is that we would be understood. And if we don't understand that the primary relationship in my life is not with anyone else but God. And I say this because if I don't, if I don't cry out to God with the depths of whatever, my fears, my temptations, my anger, whatever is going on in my soul, if I'm not crying out to God, if my spirit is not crying out to God, then um, I'm going to live in a solitude in my soul and I'm going to be drawing from people, demanding from people, you've got to understand me. Why do you not understand me, right? And this is what happens with people, and this happens with us all the time, is that, is that people that get close to us, every one of us, doesn't. it's not some people that are just beat up, damaged goods. You ever get a package in the mail? I got a package in the mail from Amazon, and it looked like it had been run over by a truck, chopped up in a, in a, in a shredder, and it was just like, you know, like, how did this even happen? And sometimes um, we think, well, people are like that package. But guess what? Every one of us, no matter what age that we're at, we, are, we have damaged goods inside. And those damaged goods need to be continually addressed by the comfort and by the, Holy, by the Word of God. By the Word of God. It's the Bible that, heal, that's the Bible that heals us in Psalm 103, uh, verse 20. Uh, you have sent your word, and it heals us. That's why we need to hear the word of God preached. The foolishness of preaching. Guy standing with a microphone in front of everybody else, just preaching. It's like so foolish in so many ways. But this is like the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That by the preaching of the word, by someone pro- proclaiming out, whether it's in a small group or in a large auditorium, we need to hear the word of God. Why? Because the word of God, it, it, there's two things happening when we hear the word of God. You're hearing a voice audibly, whether it's mine or somebody else, but you're also hearing an inaudible voice, and that's the voice of the Holy Spirit. Has that happened to you before? Yes. Where you're hearing something, and then something's clicking inside. That clicking is the Holy Spirit speaking to you, Rhema, in Matthew 4, verse 4. And so the human spirit, it's important. We are spiritual. Number two, we are deep people, and not everybody's going to understand us, and that's why we have to get... That's why we have to develop, if it's in your truck, if it's in your backyard, if it's in, a, in your prayer closet, wherever you are, where you have solitude, where you can just think with God and, and meditate on his word or listen to his word, we need that. Because when we have that, there's going to be some definition speaking to that solitude inside of us. And this is happening in the world. This is the curse of social media. I like social media to a measure. I think it's very, it can be, it's very profitable. Um, but I think what can happen with social media is, is that 
uh, people demand from social media understanding and comfort that only God can give. And so, so important that we understand what to do with that solitude, that we don't become a prisoner of that solitude, but we confess it to God. Because if we don't fill that solitude with the presence of God and the promises of God, right? First Peter says this, that by these precious and exceedingly great pr- promises, we become what? Partakers, right? We begin to be tar- partakers of what? The divine nature. Sounds almost like, that sounds like some amazing thing. The divine nature. How do we experience God? Like if somebody was to say, how do I experience God in my spiritual life? Just read the promises. And when you read the promises and you believe the promises and you allow God to show you the, the power of the promises, guess, guess what happens? We become partakers of something that people don't see or people don't hear or experience, and that's God. We experience God in his presence when we just read the promises. And that's why we need to be quickened by the, by the word of God. And when that happens, then the solitude in our life is comforted, it's addressed, and it doesn't become a vacuum or a, or a black hole. And this is, where, this is where addictions begin. This is where, this is where uh, cyclic failures begin. And we can turn the air conditioning down a little bit because it's a little warm in here, isn't it? Um, I think that's that one over there, Wes. And this is what happens when people, when we do not allow God to address the, uh, these, the, the void inside of us and speak promises into that void, then we're going to fill it with stuff from the world. We're going to fill it with, with culture, with trends, with vocabulary, with style, or, or whatever our bend in our nature is. We're going to fill it with something because to live in that void is something that people cannot do very long and still be sane. And so God desires to draw near to us. He desires to be in Psalm 68, a father to the fatherless. He desires, God wants to take the solitary and place them in the families. It's a beautiful verse, isn't it? The, the solitary, the, the lonely, he wants to take them. And it does, that's not only about uh, children that don't have parents, but it talks about us, you and I, solitary people, that he wants to bring us into a family, the family of God, a big family or a small family. And this family is a place where, where we can experience um, safety, a refuge, so that when we share something with somebody, we know that it's not going to be repeated and there's not going to be gossip. And it's not going to be somebody that looks down at us if somebody says something to us. This is, this is the only place in the universe, the church is the only place in the universe where, where someone can go, should be able to go, and to uh, bear out what's happening in their life and not have it publicized everywhere. And unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. But this is why God hates gossip so much, because gossip destroys a sense of the safety and the, and the refuge that people can find in the body of Christ. And so that means this, practically, if somebody shares something with you in a confidential way, no matter how, maybe it's your enemy, you find out some, some kind of some tasty, scrumptious information about your enemy, <laughs> and you just can't wait to tell somebody about it because they're... It's going gonna, it's gonna to be great for you to repeat. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be so much fun to tell about somebody else's defeat. That's just gossip, and that's not the mind of God. You know, when we talk about the sins that God hates the most, there's the dirty dozen or the top ten or whatever you want to call them. 
But you know what God really hates? It's Proverbs chapter 6. It's the sins of the tongue. It says that God, that's what God hates the most. You know, the, not, the, not the, the unpardonable sin that people talk about or the scarlet sin or whatever sins we want to call those that religiosity, God just hates sins of the tongue because it, what it does is that it destroys a safe zone for people to be able to enjoy body life. And so solitude, let God fill his, your solitude with his love. And that could take years. Don't get, don't get discouraged if, if you hear a message like this and then this afternoon you go out and you, and you just blow it or you just don't trust God. This is going to take years. I remember my pastor years ago when I was in Bible college, 18 years old, he said to us, Pastor Stevens, he said, things that we're teaching here are going to take probably more than three to ten years for you to experience in your life, so don't get discouraged. Don't get discouraged. You're in a process, and God's going to get you there. God's going to get you there. And I heard it recently said it this way. God's going to get you to the other side of his calling if he's, for your life if he's going to beat you through the keyhole. <laughs> it sounds a little brutal, but I like that because God's going to get us to where we're supposed to be because he's, he's faithful. He is, he is trustworthy. And then the last, the last point I want to make here is, is, that, um, is that when we are quickened, by the Holy Spirit, we begin to live on another plane, another level of thinking. It's the only time that we can step back and look at ourselves and talk to ourselves. Did you ever do that? Step back and talk to yourself from a divine viewpoint. That's a spiritual conversation. That's what Colossians 3 says, speaking to yourselves in, in Psalms and hymns, speaking to yourselves. And when we, when we walk in the Spirit, what does that mean practically? It just means to say, God, my, my, my soul is cleaving to the dust. Uh, I have no desire for any, I don't have any desire for you. I don't have any desire to go to church. Or I don't have any desire for any of this. And then the first, the first thing, what do we do with that? Many times, 99% of the times, we just condemn ourselves, don't we? I should want to go to church. Or I should want to do this. I should want to serve God. I should want to, I've been a Christian for 1,700 years, and I should know better. That is the wrong response to, to that kind of temptation that comes out our way. When we wake up one morning, or every morning, or every minute of the day, or however often it happens, and we say, I don't have any love in my heart for this other person, or I don't have any desire for this situation, I don't want, I don't want to do this, I don't have anything, guess what we do? At that moment, we say, God, that's the state of my soul, and it's cleaving to the dust, and God... Your salvation in my life was not my idea. It was your idea. So you got to quicken me. you got to renew my mind. And say, God, I need to be renewed. There's a guy in Baltimore, and I've said his story before. Some of you guys may know him. His name is Big Dave. Really big guy from Jersey, I think. He had a bar downtown Baltimore on Fleet Street. Massive guy, long hair. And... Uh, Oftentimes, um, some of our folks would go down there, the Viators would go down there and just share the gospel with him. And he was just this big dude that was just super intimidating and uh, an alcoholic. And he just said, and he shared this publicly from the pulpit in Baltimore. He said, he said, I used to pray that I would have the desire to desire freedom from this alcohol in my life. He said, I used to pray for the desire just to desire he said, I was lost. And you know what happened? God did it. And I don't know how God did it, but God did it. 
The point being is this, is that when you and I do not have what it takes, when we feel like we don't have what it takes, don't condemn yourself and don't get into a works program. Go to God and say, God, this is where, this is where I'm at. My soul cleaves to dust. I need to be quickened by your Holy Spirit. And at that moment, just break out, just carry a New Testament or carry a Bible in your car or, or on your phone or just, you know, just have some kind of conversation with God. Maybe it's the same verse over three weeks. I don't know. Maybe God's showing you something. And it's not necessarily something that you got to preach about or you have to tell everybody about or post on Facebook. But it's just something that you and God are having a conversation about. Okay, you can post verses on Facebook. I'm, that's, I'm not saying don't do that. But I'm just saying that you and God have a conversation about a topic. And don't be intimidated or don't be embarrassed how simple it is because it doesn't matter how long you follow God, we're always going to have this question God, I'm still afraid. God, I still worry. God, I still don't have patience. God, I still have this and that. But when we say, God, quicken me according to thy word, open the word up and just read it and just let God speak to you and just say, God, speak to me a promise. And when you do that, God will quicken you. And when you receive that word and you let that take place in your soul, that's going to reciprocate and it's going to be a word of encouragement for somebody else down the road. No matter how simple it is. No matter how simple it is. And this is the power of the promises of God. This is the power of uh, the promises of God. This is the power of what God does. Trusting him only. Not living in condemnation. As Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, and in Romans chapter 8, we said this Wednesday night, Many times you'll see in this chapter, chapter 8, the word if, okay? Um, uh, for example, um, verse 9, you, ho- you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Somebody may read that, and if you're feeling a little guilty, you're going to read that and say, oh, the Spirit of God's not dwelling in me today, so... Uh, I'm in the flesh. I want to say that that verse here in the Greek, we know that in the Greek language there is this, there is these conditions for the word if. There is the first class, which is like if, and it is for sure, and the word can be translated better as since. There's another condition, if, and it may or may not be. And then third, the third condition is if, and it's probably not. Guess what condition this is in this, in this verse and many of the other verses in chapter 8. It is. If, um, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, and it, and it should say in English, since in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And this is beautiful because it tells us the, the solidity, the foundation of our walk, that the Holy Spirit is in us. We are sealed by Him. And when He is dwelling in us, He's not going to leave. He doesn't move in and move out. We are not a hotel where God moves in and moves out. Since he is in us, dwelling in us, we are not in the flesh. Isn't that amazing? What a great, great, what a great way to look at that verse. Say, so, you know what? I'm not in the flesh. Uh, I'm in the spirit. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in me. And so when we read this, this is where our spiritual life begins. This is where we say, God, um, in, in John chapter 6, verse 63, in Matthew chapter, 20, uh, chapter 26, 
where Jesus says to his disciples, pray without ceasing. Can you not pray without, could you not pray with me for one hour? And then he says, the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. In the original there, it says that the spirit is what? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is, not only is it weak, but in the original there, it says that the flesh is absolutely cut off. It has absolutely no ability. This is where legalism starts, and I'm going to close with this. Legalism begins when we think that we in some way can fulfill the law ourselves. When we, when, if we were to lower the law, if we were to lower it a little bit, like in some, some religious circles, they lower the law so that it's something that you, can, that you can do, that creates a lot of legalism. And so let's remember that. Let's think about that as we just digest this chapter. And um, uh, let's just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for our life in the Spirit. We thank you, God, that we have this we have this sure salvation, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We thank you, God, that your sovereign plan is based on your on your goodness and kindness. And though we don't see it now, though we don't see it maybe manifesting itself as a good thing, God, we look to you and we know that in the end we're going to be able to say, Wow, look what God did in the midst of that, and look how it turned out. And so, Lord, we want to trust your grace. We want to trust your goodness. We thank you, God, that you did not come to seek to save those that were healthy or those that were righteous, that you, but you came to seek and to save sinners. In Luke 19, verse 10, we thank you, God, that we can say, as Paul did, that we are the chiefest sinners, but not say that in a, in, a, in a cynical way or a sarcastic way, but to really understand that, yes, we are sinners, but at the same time, We are so deeply loved by God and so accepted and so forgiven. God, we just pray, Father, for each person here today. Thank you, God, for our guests. Thank you for Allie being here. Thank you for the miracle of her life. Just pray, Lord, that you would just continue to answer prayers that we have for family members. And bless this day, this week, and this summer before us. In Jesus' precious name, we pray these things. Amen.